and understanding as a minister from Brian's perspective, from my perspective. Part of the challenge uh, in ministering at a smaller congregation like we have is distraction. Like it, it's such a, um, it can be tough at times because something much smaller can distract us. You know, um, just like uh, when you go to these bigger churches, like a few weeks ago I ministered at a much larger church and I couldn't even see the people. Like their light set up, like I was being blinded. There was 150 people there. Nothing could distract me in that moment unless a bomb went off. You know, it's just, but when you're here, it's, uh, how many knows, this is, this is an intimate setting, right? So like when I'm up preaching and y'all are bored, I see you're bored, right? So it, it can be distracting. And, and, and when, when, like Brian said, when people are talking, it can be distracting. But uh, that's just part of the challenge as ministers um, at a small church. And, and like Brian said, there's no condemnation. There's no, uh, you know, we're trying to cut out people's freedom or anything. But Proverbs 4, 20 says, My son, give attention to my words. Right? Give attention. The New Living Translation says, pay attention. One of the ways we honor God is by honoring the people who are, who are uh, ministering to us. And, you know, it's interesting. The word honor in Greek, you know, you know what the word is? Not, this is not what it means. This is what the word is. The word honor in the Greek is time. T-I-M-E. So the number one way that we honor people is by giving them our time, which is giving them our attention, right? So that is one of the greatest ways we honor people. You know, my children, uh, tomorrow, Graham will turn eight, and, you know, I, I'm going to honor Graham with birthday gifts, right? He reminds me of that every day. Tomorrow's, you know, the 28th is my birthday. You're going to get birthday gifts, right? I'll honor him with gifts, but, you know, the, the greatest way I'm going to honor him is with my time. And uh, so, like, today when we leave here, I'm meeting Keisha and the kids, uh, in London, we're, we're going to Tennessee for a few days. Wow, we're just going to set aside some time, right? And that's just honoring Graham. That's honoring our, our one another. And so uh, just, just, just want to add what Brian said. Let, let's honor one another by giving our full focus, our full attention. And, uh, man, there, there's Proverbs 4 goes on to say, listen, it's life and it's health to your body, right? It's life and health to all your flesh. So, man, I'm telling you, when... when God, when we honor one another, Jesus, true biblical honor, when we honor one another, Jesus is, he's glorified. And when Jesus is glorified, his people are edified. So, amen. So, just wanted to add that a little bit from, from our perspective. But, um, Angie uh, mentioned that Marcus Wick, now I'm confused. I'm like, wait a minute, is it Hicks? or Hick? It's Marcus Wick. There is a Mark Hicks that we've had here. But uh, Marcus Wick will be here next uh, Sunday. Marcus is out from Colorado Springs. Uh, to my knowledge, he went to Karis Bible College. I know he ministers at Karis Bible College and, and things like that. And uh, if you've never heard Marcus, he will bless you tremendously. Uh, Marcus flows in a prophetic gift that's unlike anyone I've ever heard of. Uh, I consider Marcus a really good friend. We, we, we talk on the phone a lot and you know, he's one of those people when he calls me, I have to sit there and think, do I got an hour to talk on the phone? Because we're going to get talking about, you know, the Word and, and spiritual things, and, you know, we, we, it's, it's going to be a, a while. But uh, Marcus is just, and when you hear somebody's coming with a prophetic gift, don't think 
oh no, they're going to call me out for something, right? Whenever God, God is only good, and when he uses something to deliver something, to, when he uses someone to deliver something to you, it's only going to be good. So the prophetic gift, when it's in operation, according to the new covenant, the new testament, you're going to be blessed, right? And, and Marcus, man, he's one of these people. When, when Marcus has given me one word, and uh, we'd had a phone conversation, I didn't share anything personal with him, but he called me back like five minutes after we hung up, and he just read my mail, and then he just encouraged me, and it was just so good. So Marcus will bless you next week, and, and, and he's also a great teacher. You know, he's, I pick on him. We, we have an ongoing joke. I pick on him. Everything he will share with you next week, he will get from me. Uh, that's, what I, that's, our, that's my running joke with him because I've heard, I've heard he gets stuff from me, and then he goes and teaches it, so I give him a little bit of a hard time. But, uh, um, yeah, so next week it'll probably be my message. Unless it's not good, then it's all him, all right? So uh, I'll be here, and I'll, I'll let you know uh, which way that is. But Marcus will bless you next week. He's an awesome person. Amen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We're going to get started. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. Uh, are you excited about the word this morning? Um, man, so I, I've been... The last two messages that I've taught, I've, I've spoken on the security of the believer. And I promised you last time that I would conclude that today, and I am going to conclude that, but I'm, I didn't like the way I went about it last time. I just, it, I left and I was like, didn't like the way I, I did that. So God's actually directed me to go about it in a different direction. And what I actually want to hit is there's one verse in particular that I feel like if we can answer that verse, if we can properly interpret that verse, then this whole issue on the security of the believer, it's taken care of. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. But first, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. I, I want to read this to get started. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. So what the author of Hebrews is starting out here saying, and then he lists, uh, uh, I think it's six core doctrines, that he calls foundational doctrines or foundational principles of Christ. In other words, these are doctrines that we should get settled, get anchored in, and we should actually be able to move on from them. Now, one of those doctrines, even though he doesn't say it, is actually this whole idea about the security of the believer. And what and it would fall in the category of he, he mentions not laying again uh, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. The security of the believer falls within those two doctrines. Now, it doesn't mean... Now, we talk about grace as foundational. I'm not saying that the author of Hebrews is saying we move on from grace. We never move on from grace. We never move on from our need to trust in Jesus and not ourselves. Our need to trust in Jesus and not our performance. Our need to trust in Jesus and not, the, not you know, church and, and, and ministry and the things that we can do for Him. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we become so secure in something that it's never, it, it's just, it's a foundation we build on, right? Um, I give people this example. Uh, when you build a foundation for a house, you don't stop once the foundation is built and say, man, that looks really good. I'm done. I'm going to just live on that foundation. No, you put up walls, you put up doors, windows, you do all that. 
right? So these foundational truths, uh, they should be something that we get anchored in. You know, hopefully for anybody that's a new believer, the way this thing was supposed to be done is we got anchored in it early on in our walk with Christ, right? But for most of us, that's not the case. Most of us came up in legalism or things like that. So, so we, we, we have to go on eventually and recheck that foundation. But what I'm, what I'm saying is this issue of I can't sin away my salvation. You should be able to become so anchored in that that 10 years from now when people bring up and say maybe you lost your salvation, it doesn't even register with me. Like that's not a thought that crosses your mind when I sin. Did I lose my salvation? That should not even be a thought, right? Because it's something that is so clearly taught in the New Testament. And I'll give you an example. Another doctrine here that he mentions that is elementary is uh, uh, eternal judgment. Now, I had just a, just a, a week or so ago a good friend uh, tagged me in a post of peop- somebody had made arguing about hell. Right? And my friend had, had, had shared all these references to hell in the Bible, and that person responded and said, well, you know, hell means this. It's not actual hell like we've been taught. So this person just tagged me, and it's like, what's your opinion? And here, here's, here's what I said back to them. You can argue about words all you want to. You can call it hell. You can call it Hades. You can call it Sheol. You can call it heaven. You can call it eternity, Abraham's bosom, paradise, whatever you want to. That does not matter to me. Paul warned Timothy. He said, beware of those who like to argue about words, right? Um, But what the New Testament and the Old Testament is clear on, the Bible is clear that in the end there will be a separation. Those who have put their faith in Jesus will be separated for those who who have willingly rejected him, right? That's taught in Scripture. That is a foundational principle that we should just be so uh, anchored in that it's not really an issue for us anymore, right? So when I see people arguing about that issue, like it doesn't even, I don't even think, oh man, maybe I'm wrong. No, it's clearly taught in the Scripture. There's no way around it, right? Is there some gray area with that issue? Like for this is the one that I always throw at you. What about uh, so-and-so in Africa who's never heard the gospel, they live in a cave, or whatever, never heard the gospel. Listen, that's a gray area, but, but I like what Abraham said, shall not the Lord of all the earth do right? right? I can trust him because I know him. Right? But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong unto the Lord, but that which he has revealed to us is for us and our children. All right? So what has been revealed to us? There will be a separation, an eternal separation from those who have put their faith in Christ and then those who have openly and willingly rejected Christ. Foundational principle. All right, you can you can just keep on scrolling. When you see those posts arguing about hell and Sheol, and just keep keep on scrolling. All right, it's a it's a foundational doctrine. Uh, it's clear. So this should be the security of the believer. The fact that you can't lose your salvation should be something that you just get anchored in, and it should be a non-issue for you anymore. But there are problematic scriptures, and today we're just going to answer one, and I think it totally just does away with this question. Can a believer lose their salvation? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Let's, Let's look at 
the verse. It says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So let me tell you the way that I used to teach that scripture. And I think most people believe that's what this scripture is saying. Yes, Jesus has forgiven you. But now it's when you willfully and continually live in sin that you get in danger of losing your salvation. That if you continually, for example, if you got a pornography addiction, if you continually watch pornography, knowing it's wrong, have the Spirit convicting you, if you continually do that, eventually you reach the place where God says, I'm done, I'm going to judge you, you've lost your salvation, vengeance is mine, it's a fearful thing to fall into my hands. Right? That, that's the way I used to see it. Uh, and that's the way I believe that most people would see it. Because as I've been preaching this gospel of grace, as I've been teaching the truth of faith righteousness, I hear it all the time. People come up to me, yeah, but willful sin. right? The scripture says, yeah, but if you sin willfully. And the thing that cracks me up about that is when you ask them what willful sin is, well, it's sin that you repeat. It never says if you repeat the sin. See, that's a case of Eve. You remember when, when the serpent came to Eve and he said, has God said you shall not eat of the tree? And she said, well, he said we shouldn't eat it. He also said we should She added, we also shouldn't touch it. God never told them not to touch it, right? So she just added. So we do that. We do that with this. We say, well, willful, you know, if you continually willful, live in willful sin, then you've lost your... It doesn't say that. It just says if you sin willfully. It doesn't say if it's one time, two times, three times, four times. You can't make this say a, a, a repeating pattern. For all we know, the thing he's talking about is a one-time thing. Right? So if we sin willfully. So to really get into what this is, um, we have to look at the whole counsel of the New Testament and see what the New Testament teaches about sin. Because, so, willful in the Greek, when you look that word up in the Greek, it has one meaning, voluntary, right? So it's something, it's like you volunteer to be in this sin. It's not something you, you, you know, uh, you mess up and you accidentally do. It's something that you volunteered to do it. The, I think the best way to describe this is this willful sin that the author of Hebrews is talking about is premeditated. It's something that you thought about beforehand. You laid out in your mind all the consequences. You laid out all the pleasures. You laid out in your mind, you thought about everything, and you still did it, right? Now, you're going to see where I'm going with this, but that would be my definition of willful sin. It's sin that is premeditated. So 
we're going to look at this. Before we can answer this, we've got to look at it in light of all other New Testament Scripture. Look with me, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. And this verse was actually the one that made me realize my understanding of Hebrews 10.26 that I laid out earlier was wrong. Uh, John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, if he's saying don't do it, would you agree that this is clearly willful sin? That this is premeditated sin? Because, listen, you can't go up to somebody and say, don't you do it, and they say, well, don't do what? Right? This can't be talking about accidental sin. Don't you accidentally sin. Right? Why? Because it's an accident, right? So this has to be talking about something that's willful, something that's premeditated. And John here, he says, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. But look here. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he goes on to say in verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, uh, he's the one who, who paid the price for our sin. So which is it? Is it Hebrews 10, 26, that if we sin willfully, there's no longer a sacrifice for our sins? Or is it 1 John 2, 1, that if we sin, there is an advocate. There is someone who paid for our sins. It can't be both. Do you see that? These verses are saying two totally different, contradictory things. If Hebrews 10, 26 is to be understood as, don't you willfully commit adultery. Don't you willfully steal. Don't you willfully covet. Don't you willfully uh, cuss. Don't you willfully get drunk. Don't you willfully do drugs. And on and on we could go. If that's the case, if that's the willful sin of Hebrews 10, 26, then 1 John 2, 1 totally contradicts it. Do you see that? All right. So let's go on. Let's look at, we've got to look at and see what the New Testament teaches about sin. And, and what I'm going to do is we're, we're going to look at some things in the New Testament, then we're going to come back and we're going to answer uh, what Hebrews 10, verse 26 is. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. He says here, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. I was reading through the book of Hebrews this past week, and this blessed me. If the minister you're listening to and all they minister to minister to you is about the bad things to come, turn them off. Because the ministry of Jesus, he, he ministers about the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So from there we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. So he just said in Hebrews 9, 12, he says, listen, Jesus, gave, he offered his blood, and when he did so, he secured something for us. He acquired something for us. What was it? Eternal redemption. Now that word, there are certain words that we say, and if you've been raised in church all your life, you just say them and you never really think, what does that actually mean? 
And redemption is one of those words. And I can remember years ago, I was reading that verse, and I thought, what exactly is redemption? What does it mean? I looked it up in the Greek. I looked it up in the Hebrew. I looked it up in, in you know, scholars and theologians. And I just got more confused, right? Because everybody, redemption, and here's why. Redemption is a loaded word. It means a lot of things. But Paul actually gives us this foundational definition of redemption, all right? And we're about to read it in Ephesians 1. But also that word eternal. Now, when you think of the word eternal, what we think of is uh, never-ending, right? When we talk about eternal life, what we think that means is one day we're going to die, and if we're saved, we're going to go live with Jesus forever and it never ends. That is true, but the word eternal in the Greek actually means that which knows no beginning and that which knows no end. In other words, it backs all the way up before Adam, and it will go all the way a trillion years from now throughout eternity. Right? It knows no beginning and it knows no ending. So whatever this redemption is that Jesus provided for us, there's no beginning to it and there's no ending to it. All right? So Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 7, Ephesians 1, verse 7, it says this, In Him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. So here's what Paul's saying. All right, we have redemption through His blood. That's the exact same thing we just read in Hebrews 9, 11, 12. And then it's like, people's like, well, what is redemption? Paul answers the question. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Now let's go to Colossians uh, 1.14 for a second witness to this. Colossians 1.14 says this. It says, In whom, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. It says the exact same thing. What is redemption? The forgiveness of sins. So, in Hebrews 9.12, you could, if you've got a, a paper Bible, you could just put right there, over redemption, you could put forgiveness of sins. He acquired for us, He secured for us an eternal forgiveness of sins. So here's what this means. The forgiveness that the blood of Jesus provided, it knows no beginning. And it knows no end. So it doesn't end... The forgiveness of sins doesn't end when it's willful. You see that? Just because it's willful, do, listen, a willful sin is not stronger than the eternal forgiveness of God. All right? So, it, it, so again, we see further evidence. Willful sin can't be if you watch pornography long enough and do it intentional enough the mercy of God runs out. It can't mean that. Not when we compare it with the, the full counsel of Scripture. So let's go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. And this is the one that really nails this home. 1 John chapter 2, <laughs> verse 12. It says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Now, when we read this in the English, the way we read that is your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. We read that as that's a past tense thing, maybe a present tense thing. But we read that as 
There was a point in time when Jesus forgave us or he does forgive us, however you want to put it. But now in the Greek, this is really interesting. In the Greek, this word, uh, are, the words are forgiven is in the perfect tense. Not the past tense, not the present tense, not the future tense. It's in the perfect tense. Listen what that means. In the Greek, the perfect tense describes an action which is viewed as having been completed in the past once and for all, not needing to be repeated. So you were forgiven once and for all when you, were, when you by faith trusted in Jesus. It's like you went outside of time and suddenly you were in the eternal. right? And suddenly it's as if you had always been forgiven and you will always be forgiven. There's no place where it ends. There's no place where it even started once you step out, once you step into that eternal realm. Once you stand into that eternal standing with God, there is no beginning or ending to the forgiveness that's been provided for you in Christ. It's perfect. It was done once and for all, and it will never need to be repeated. Now, this is important because people will debate, like, I've, I've held every one of these views. There was a time in my life that based on Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. I thought, okay, we're forgiven when we're baptized. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the remission of there's no uh, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. So let me ask you this. You in here that's been baptized, when you were baptized in water, at what point during that baptismal did you shed blood? If, if, if that happened, I'm running out of here. Especially if you tell me Jeremiah did it. I am out of here. Right? Well, then, if there was no bloodshed at that moment, that can't be the moment you were forgiven. Some say, based on 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Some say you're forgiven every time you confess. This used to be the view I had. I was forgiven from, from my birth up to the point of my salvation, but for th- from this point on, I've got to keep my confession up. When I know I sin, I've got to confess it. As long as I confess it, I'm good. Again, Hebrews 10.26 never says, if you sin willfully, it's okay as long as you confess it. That's not what it says. It says, if you sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for your sins. But a certain fiery indignation looking towards of judgment. So, so again, when, when you confess your sin, at what point do you shed blood? You don't. Right? You're not, in your, your be- you're not in your bedroom kneeling at your bed at night. Like me and Keisha, this used to be our thing. When we first got married, every night we'd pray together, laying in bed, and we would spend 95% of the prayer confessing our sins. Like, Lord, we are so sorry. We, and, and, and listen, we weren't even doing anything wrong, so it's like, Lord, now we don't really know what we did, but we know we did something. Right? And just forgive us for whatever it is that we did that we shouldn't have done. Right? So, listen, it doesn't work that way. The, God has a blood economy, right? And that blood was shed once and for all on the cross. That blood was presented once and for all when Jesus overcame hell in the grave, ascended to the Father, and presented His blood in heaven, right? So, it's, that is done. 
The forgiveness issue is done, it's settled, it's taken care of. Do you see that? All right, Romans chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. So we see that according to the New Testament, all sin is forgiven. Here's our next point, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man. I want to share something with you. I was just reading this yesterday, and this truly blessed me. Based on the way it's worded, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man, we read that and think uh, that really what it's saying is David was just talking about how awesome this new covenant is. David was just saying, listen, you, you people, man, you're the blessed ones, right? How many of you, uh, now it's kind of hard to ask you guys this because we have this revelation that, that, you know, listen, nobody's better than anyone else, right? We, we've got that revelation. But if you lived in the UK and somebody came to you and said the queen wants to bless you, I guarantee you would take them up on that offer, right? Especially if you lived in biblical times and you was in Israel when David was the king and they came to you and said David wants to bless you, in that culture, in that time, with the understanding they had of a spoken blessing, they would have ran to David to get his blessing. Read the book of Genesis. When these patriarchs died, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, man, the children ran to the bedside because they wanted to be blessed by these people. And so the word, when he says blessedness here in Romans 4, what it's actually saying is it's referring to a spoken blessing. It means to ascribe blessedness. In other words, David, it's as if David spoke blessing over you because this is your condition, right? It's like you've been blessed by the king, right? That's what this means. That, that blessed me may not mean anything for you. It's not even why I'm here, but there you go. It's free. Uh, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, imputes in the Greek, it means to take inventory of. So what this means is for the believer, for, for the one who has trusted in Jesus, God takes an inventory of your life, and you know what he finds? Righteousness. Right standing with him. Well, what about, what about this? What about that? What, what about when I did this? What about when I did that? No, it's apart from works. has nothing to do with that. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Look at verse 8. This is the important one. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The message of the, content, of the modern church is blessed is the man who does not sin because then God doesn't have anything to hold against you. The message of the New Testament is blessed is the man to whom the Lord will never impute sin unto him. Now, so this is what this is saying. On Judgment Day, you appear before God. My view of Judgment Day used to be, and I know I've already talked about this, but there's going to be a, a, a scales, there's going to be balances before God. He's like, all right, one time you did this, but then you did do this. But then you did all these things. That was bad. But over here, oh, yeah, but yeah, that one time you gave that person a dollar. That's really good. Uh, but you have $4 in your pocket, so nope, that's not good. You know, we'll put that back over in the bad, 
right? And, and so my hope was eventually that the good would outweigh the bad. And then I would get in. No. Righteousness is apart from works. So, so according to that idea of judgment, that's not how judgment's going to be, but according to that idea, God taking inventory, when he looks at a believer, all he's going to see is the good. Right? That's all, that's all he's going to see. Why? Because the sin, he's not, he's not taking inventory of that. He's, he, he doesn't see that. He's not viewing that. He's not counting that against you. All right, now over here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, listen to this. Therefore, just as though, as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. So sin entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned, right? That's when sin and death entered the world. And thus death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Verse 13, this is why we're here. For until the law, sin was in the world. All right, so listen, before, you don't get to the law until Exodus chapter 19 in your Bible. So you've got all these men of God in Genesis and Exodus who, did they sin? Yes. Right? They, they, they sinned over and over and over. Well, why didn't God punish them? There's actually an example in the Bible. Abraham lied about his wife. He said, no, she's just my sister. Y'all can sleep with her. All right, I don't care. I don't even know. It's just my sister. I don't care, right? And, and you know what happens? God doesn't show up, shake his bed, and say, you got it coming to you now. God takes up for him against the man who is going to sleep with his wife. And God says, you better let the woman go. Why? Abraham sinned. You can, there's no way around that that you can say, well, Abraham didn't sin. Sin is not imputed when there is no law, right? Give you another example, Cain. The first, you know, I know the first sin was, was them eating of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, but the first, like, like what we think of sin, right? When we don't think of eating from a tree as a real sin, right? We, we, we want to talk about the, the, the stuff that, you know, makes a good movie. So the first one, Cain kills his brother Abel. God shows up. And they have a conversation. And in the end, Cain says, Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to put a mark on you. Well, we don't know what the mark is. But he says, I'm going to put a mark on you. And if anyone finds you and punishes you for this, I'll take care of them. Now, that's interesting because here's a murderer. But before the law, and God says... In the law, what was the, what was the uh, curse for murders? Stoned, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, right? But before the law, God actually defended the murderer. We've seen that with Moses. Remember when Moses killed a man, what happened? God defended him. So sin was in the world, but it wasn't imputed. Now let's fast forward to today. Sin is still in the world. As a believer... Will there be times you sin? Absolutely. But guess what? The law is no longer your master. Paul actually said in Romans 7, verses 1 through 4, that we're now dead to the law. So as far as you're concerned with the law of Moses, there is no law. All right, now, people can read that the wrong way and think I'm saying things I'm not. I'm just going to trust the Spirit to tell you, you know, to, to make it clear to you what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. 
But, so, so the first point I want to make is all sin is forgiven. The second point I want to make is even though all sin is forgiven, there will be times you sin, but guess what? That's not being put in your inventory. That's not being counted against you. And there will never be a day that God reminds a believer of their sin and says, because of this, you're disqualified. Because of this, you don't get to enter in. Because of this, I can't give you rest. Because of this, on and on we could go. Because of this, you've lost your salvation. That will never, ever happen. How can you lose your salvation when the sin isn't even being held against you by the one who gave it? You can't, right? You can't. So, um, now let's go to John chapter 16 and verses, we'll begin with verse 7. John chapter 16 and verse 7. Now also, I want to say this. This is a point I, I didn't put in my notes, and, but I do, I do want to mention it. We have got to understand there is a legal aspect to our salvation, right? When the, when the Bible uses words such as justification, that is a legal term. Um, so there is a legal aspect to our salvation, and most of the time that's what we in, in the United States, when we talk about salvation, that's what we're talking about, the legal aspect, aspect of your salvation. But there's also a living aspect to your salvation. And let me explain what I mean. So many of us just see salvation as this legal transaction. All right, Jesus paid for your sin, therefore you're forgiven, you're saved, right? Because you, you, you've accepted that payment, you've believed in me. But there's another aspect to our salvation. Salvation isn't just the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is receiving the life of God. Sin is being made a new creation in righteousness and true holiness. See, uh, salvation is when my spirit becomes one with Christ. It is literally a new life. When you get saved, you become a new person on the inside of you in your born-again spirit. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says something interesting. It says, whosoever is born of God does not sin. And people see, see right there, if you're truly saved, you won't sin. No, who's born of God? John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says, that which is born of the Spirit, big S, is spirit, little s. The man that is born of God is the inner man. Ephesians 1.13 says that when, after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So here's why I'm sharing all that. So all your sins forgiven, your sin won't be imputed unto you, and sin can't penetrate your born-again spirit because it's been sealed. right? So you can never go, okay, I'm a new creation. Because God has done such a good job of that salvation, because He has sealed your spirit, there will never be that moment where He's like, okay, now you're an old, now you're an old creation again. Okay, you, 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 were, you, were, uh, you did have my life, but now you don't have my life. Now you're dead again. Right? You can't because sin can't penetrate your spirit. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. The moment they sinned, sin penetrated their spirit, and it changed their standing. It changed the life that they were living. Right? But Jesus wanted to make sure that this thing couldn't be undone. Because listen, if somebody could undo it, it's me. Yep. 
If someone could undo it, it's you. Just be honest, right? If this thing is up to us, we're all in trouble. If this thing is up to our performance, the best thing we can do is people get saved and we pray they die right then. Because that's the only way they're going to make it. Right? Have you ever seen that kind of prayer meeting? All right. You, how many of you would do that? All right. Come up to be saved. You get saved. All right. Now I'm going to pray for you to die. All right. Get ready. All right. Here we go. You ready? Right? We, but if we think it's about us and our performance, that is the best thing to do. It's not about us. Right? So John chapter 16, verse 7. Uh, here, here, this is Jesus speaking. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. There it is. Because this is another accusation I get. Well, brother, I believe Jesus is the Holy Spirit is still going to convict me of sin. Now listen, absolutely, when you have a relationship with someone and they care about you, they're going to let you know when you're doing something that is dangerous, when you're doing something that is not good for you, right? That's part of, that's part of my marriage. That's part of being a parent. That's, and listen, there will be times, absolutely, God will tell you, you don't need to do this. You shouldn't do that, right? But he never does it with, a, you know, like a carrot and a stick. He never does it and says, now listen, if you do this, it's game over. You lost your salvation. I'm not going to talk to you. You're disqualified from the promises. It's over. He never does that. All right, and we're going to see that here in a minute. John chapter 16, verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. So it's actually, his conviction is just not sin. There's three things he convicts of, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9. Of sin... Because they commit adultery, because they murder, because they do drugs, because they get drunk, because they gamble, because they don't go to church, because they don't give enough in the offering, because on and on. No. The sin that he's convicting the world of is they do not believe in him. Now notice what he says. Of sin because they. Notice he did not say you. Why? The men he's talking to here, they believe in him. So he's saying, listen, the Spirit's job is not to convict you of sin. So this tells me something. That, that one category of sin is unbelief. Do you see that? But we often don't think of that. Like I said, we think of the things that's going to make good movies. Unbelief doesn't make a very good movie. All right? Um, of sin because they do not believe in me. Keep going of righteousness because I go to my Father, look here, and you see me no more. Different categories. They don't believe on me. You don't see me. Right? So what's he going to convict you of? The believer. The people who, who they're not in unbelief. They're not in the sin of, of not believing. What's he going to convict them of? Righteousness. We see this in Corinth. There was a man in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, who it looks, you know, people debate exactly what his sin was. Either he was sleeping with his mother or he was sleeping with his uh, father's wife, right, his stepmother's, or, or possibly sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul shows up, and I find this so interesting in this letter. Paul doesn't say, here's what I would have done 15 years ago. 
Right? I, I would have done this 15 years ago. I, I started ministering. I can't believe it, but this year is my 15th year of ministry. So I started 15 years ago. 15 years, here's what I would have said. Uh, if somebody came up to me at that Baptist church and was like, listen, I'm, I'm sleeping with my, my mother-in-law or my stepmother. I'm like, well, listen, you better get your act together or you're going to lose your salvation. You're going to forfeit your salvation. It's going to be over. Judgment's going to come. Right? That's what I would have said. Paul shows up. You know what he says to him? He says, stop. Don't be doing that. He's a sin- Unbelievers don't even do that. Right? They've got more honor and more respect for their father than to do that, and you're doing it. You know, but you know what he says? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you? He shows up and he says, don't you know God's on the inside of you? It's really hard to see him when you know God's inside of you. That is the, if you struggle with something, you don't need to know that that's wrong and be, and, and be made to fear for your salvation. You need to raise your awareness of the Christ in you. Because listen, how many knows if you're married and your spouse is with you, you're a lot less inclined to take that look when that person walks by. Right? Why? I might get caught. Right? So, so you're less inclined to do that. When you know God is on the inside of you, listen, you'll get to this place where, and I know that sounds like I'm saying, oh, well, you'll, you'll get to this place where you'll be scared God to catch you. That's not what I'm saying. It's an imperfect example. What I'm saying is when you're aware of the Christ in you, man, you're like, I'm better than this. This is not who I am. And, and people would say, listen, that wouldn't work. You do that, that would never work. That guy would just keep sleeping with that woman. It worked. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to him. He says, listen, this guy's repented. I'm sorry how sorrowful he is. Let's forgive him. Let's move on. Let's restore him. Right? It worked. Reminding him of who he is, what was on the inside of him, who was eternally united with him, worked. And it brought him out of his destruction. It brought him out of his sin. It brought him out of that which was entangling him and ruining his life. It worked. Right? All right. Uh, then I think verse 11, uh, let's go to verse 11, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Again, the judgment is not even listed here as being for the unbeliever. It's not even being, why? Because listen, 2 Corinthians 5, you know what Paul says? He says, God is not holding their trespasses against them. Do you know right now God is not holding anyone's sins against them, believer or unbeliever? What's the judgment for? It's not for the believer. Why? All your sins have been placed on Jesus. He bore the judgment for your sin. Who's being judged? The ruler of this world. The enemy, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him. He's the one who was judged at the cross. And I've done whole messages on it, but listen. Long story short, when Jesus ascended, he kicked kicked the devil out. And here's why this is powerful. Notice he says in 1 John 2, 1, he said, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Job, had he didn't have an advocate. In the book of Job, the devil stood before God, and God said, are you considering Job? God wasn't pointing Job out and saying, go get Job. God was reading the devil's mail. And he's saying, I know what you're... Because he said, uh, Satan, what are you doing? He said, I'm just walking to and fro throughout the whole earth. And God said, no, you're not. You've got your eye on Job. You ain't walking throughout the whole earth. You're walking around Job's property. Right? So before, for Job, 
who stood before God, the enemy. But when Jesus died, he went and presented his blood. And it teaches us in Hebrews. It says, listen, heaven had to be cleansed. Something happened when Adam sinned, and I don't think we understand all of it. Like I said, I've done whole messages. But we talk about the curse upon the earth. Listen, something also changed in heaven. And the enemy suddenly had access to the throne of God. But when Jesus presented his blood before the throne, Satan was kicked out. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. So here's why I'm saying that. You can't lose your salvation. You want to know one reason why? Because there is no one in heaven who is bringing an accusation about you to the Father. All of heaven is for you. In heaven, only good things are said about you. In heaven, listen, in heaven they're not shaking their heads saying, I can't believe they did that. No, in heaven they're saying they're righteous, they're justified, they're holy, they're good, they're filled with the Spirit, they're united with me, they're one with me, right? All of heaven is for you. All of heaven is for you. All right, so let's get to this issue of, of Hebrews 10.26. All that for this, right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19. So... Remember that Jesus said that the world will be convicted of sin because they do not believe in Him. And I said, all right, the natural conclusion for us to reach is, is that unbelief is a sin. All right? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19 says, So we see that they could not enter in, they speaking of the Old Testament, because of unbelief. So in the Old Testament, Israel never, the, the generation that didn't enter the promised land, they did not, not make it in because of murder. They did not make it in because of adultery and all the, you know, list your favorite sins. They only didn't make it in because of unbelief. Why? Remember God said, I'll give you the land. Go spy it out. They came back, ten of them said, you know what? We'll never, we'll never conquer it. Right? It was unbelief. It was unbelief. Now notice, that's the thing that kept them out. Not their constant complaining, not their calf worship, not their, not their uh, um, um, you know, going for false idols. None of those things kept them out. It was their unbelief that kept them out. All right? Now there are two types of unbelief. There is an unbelief that is ignorant. Um, there are people who just don't know what Jesus has provided. They may even be in church every Sunday, and they still don't know what Jesus has provided. Right? You can't receive something that you don't know anything about. Right? There could be somebody out of this church right now that, let's say, just somebody wasn't here this morning. Let's say Jeremiah's like at his house. He's got like a, a, a gift just sitting for me on the porch for me to get. I can't go get it. Why? Because he's not told me that such a thing exists. The only way I can go get it is if he calls me and he says, listen, there's a, there's a gift for you on my porch. Right? So that is one type of unbelief that is ignorance. But then there's another type of unbelief that is willful rejection of the truth. I know there's a gift there, but I don't want it. All right? Our problem with the way we read our Bible, especially the epistles, is 
Like, like here this morning, you see me taking verses out of context. I mean, not out of context, but out of their place. I don't, I'm not always reading the context. I try to, but listen, to get the full context, at times you have to read the entire book. So like John, like the book of John, listen, you can't just read. You can read John 16, verses 7 through 11, but listen, you want the immediate context beginning John 1, 1 and go through John 21. Right? Sometimes you have to do that. So especially the epistles, they didn't handle things the way we do, right? They didn't come to church and read one verse and preach on it. They would stand up, for example, the, the Hebrews, they would begin in Hebrews 1.1 and they'd read all 13 chapters, one setting. That's why there was much less misunderstanding. It's hard to not get the context when you're doing that. So I recommend to people all the time, listen, if you're going to read an epistle, if, like you have a question, read the whole thing. Don't just read the chapter. Don't just read the verses above and beneath. You can do that at times, but sometimes you've got to read the whole chapter. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 is an example of that. You need to read the whole book. It is the epistle to the Hebrews. It was written to Jews. It was written to Israelites. Who What they have? They had Moses... They had temple worship. They had sacrifices, right? They had their Old Testament characters that they knew, uh, knew about. They had these things. Now, we know they were believers in Jesus because otherwise they wouldn't listen to this letter, right? Some dude's writing us about something we don't even believe in. They, so he's clearly talking to Hebrew Jewish Christians, all right? That's important. Audience is important, all right? Um, like the way I minister to you guys, when I go into the directly into the Bible Belt in southeastern Kentucky, I can't preach a lot of the stuff, and I definitely can't use some of the examples I use here. Right? They'll they'll kick me out. Right? Audience, knowing your audience is important. Right? So the Epistle to Hebrews, he says, all right, they could not enter in because of unbelief. So he's saying their sin that ruined them was unbelief. The rest of that epistle, when you see the word sin, you could just mark it out and put unbelief. Try it. Go through the book of Hebrews, and every time you see sin, just say unbelief. Right? Disobedience, just say unbelief. See, the King James actually brings out unbelief a lot more. Now, I'm reading from the New King James this morning. And like when you read Hebrews chapter 4, where the King James talks a lot about unbelief, the New King James, it's like the newer translation is like, that's so good. People's going to misunderstand that. Let's put disobedience in there, right? Because then, then, then it looks like it's about performance. No, their disobedience was what? Unbelief. Their sin was unbelief. Now, with that being said, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. And I'm going to read this whole chapter, but I'm going to go really, really fast. But I want you to get an idea of what's, what's being talked about here. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices. So what's he talking about? The sacrificial system of the old covenant. He said those sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. They can't, the sacrificial system of the old covenant cannot make you perfect. Verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. In other words, put it real simple. If these things worked, they wouldn't have to keep offering them. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. In other words, listen, if forgiveness is what you want, you won't find it offering a bull and a goat. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor a pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Which is it? Have we been sanctified once for all or have we been sanctified until we sin willfully? Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Listen, we don't do this today. We don't offer for sacrifices. We got different sacrifices. We got baptisms. We got confession of sins. We got good works. We got offerings, right? That's our sacrifices. And he's saying those, are, those will never be good enough. Those will never be better than the blood of Jesus because those things have to be repeated. But this thing never has to be repeated. Uh, verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. What's that mean? He's done. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. That's our job. Verse 14. For by one offering, he is perfected forever. What about when you sin willful? Forever. Those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, look here. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Not till they sin willfully. No more. Verse 18. Now where there is remission of these. This is the key to verse 26. Where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. If you're forgiven, you don't have to make sacrifices anymore. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now start noticing what he starts saying. I'm going to start emphasizing some words. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Look here. And having the high priest over the house of God. Look here. Let us draw near. Now what's the opposite of drawing near? Drawing away. Right? With a true heart in look, look, full assurance. What's the lack of what's the lack of what's the opposite of security? Insecurity. Right? What's the what's the opposite of full assurance? No assurance. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us look here. Hold fast the confession of our hope. Without wavering. What what is the opposite of without wavering? Wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. 
for not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. These verses, verses 24 and 25, is why people don't connect verse 26 with everything that was just said before. Because we think he's saying it's no more sacrifice for sins, no more sacrifice for sins, don't need the temple no more, don't need the animals anymore, and you better make sure you keep going to church. Like we think he just threw that in there. Make sure you keep going to church. Right? He's still talking. What? Read the epistles. And what you will find is Paul is not primarily arguing about this particular sins you're dealing with. He's not trying to get you to do more, fast more, pray more. Primarily what Paul is doing in the New Testament is he's coming against this idea. Do you know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was? Paul's thorn in the flesh was actually the Jewish people. Why? Because everywhere Paul went, they followed him and they persecuted him. And they said, this isn't the way. Jesus isn't enough. You can have Jesus, but also put this, you also got to go to the temple. You can have Jesus, but you also need the sacrifices. You can have Jesus, but you also need the thou shalt nots. Jesus isn't enough. You need some more. You need Jesus plus Moses to get to heaven. You need Jesus plus Moses to have salvation. That is primarily the argument that Paul is coming against in the New Testament. And that is the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. Talk to anybody who's left the Jewish faith in favor for Christianity and they will tell you a lot of times they've been shunned, a lot of times they've been kicked out of their family. There's persecution for leaving that faith to go to, to, to become a Christian. The whole book of Hebrews, that's why he begins, he's saying, listen, God has spoken in many ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Right there he offended, he could have offended the Jewish audience. Why? Because he's saying, listen, I know God spoke by Moses, but now he's talking by Jesus. I know God spoke by the sacrifices, but now he's speaking by the blood of Jesus. I know God spoke by angels, but now he's speaking by his son. I know God spoke by the temple, but now he's speaking by his church. Right? I, it's all about Jesus. The book of Hebrews, listen, Galatians, he's, the purpose is faith righteousness. Romans, the purpose is faith righteousness. Hebrews, Jesus. The person and work now, faith righteousness comes by Jesus, but Hebrews primarily focuses on the person and the work of Jesus in contrast to the purpose and the work of Moses and the sacrificial system of the temple. So why does he say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together? Because these people, these Jews, these Hebrews, are getting hit on every side. Every time they get with their family, you know that God's not pleased with this. This is idol worship. You're saying this man is the Son of God and gave you eternal forgiveness of sins. That's, you're, in dangerous, you're, in, you're in the danger zone. You're in the judgment zone. So what he's saying to them here, he's like, listen, don't forsake getting, along, getting among people who believe the same thing you do, who believe in Jesus, who trust in Jesus, who will point you to Jesus. So this brings us to, do you see that Hebrews 10 1 through 25 is all about the insufficiency of the blood sacrifice of animals and goats and bulls. You see that? It's clear, right? Verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. What is the knowledge of the truth? Jesus' blood is the only sacrifice you will ever need for your sins. He paid it once and for all. You don't need anything else. 
So what would to sin willfully be? I know that, but I don't want that. Here's what this willful sin is. It's trusting in the blood of Jesus, but being convinced that you also need the blood of bulls and goats. It's, I know Jesus paid for it, but what if he didn't get it all? Maybe this blood, maybe the blood of the bulls and the goats can take care of it. It's leaving the security that is found in Jesus and flirting with the insecurity that is offered by Moses. All right? They're no longer, listen, that's why he said this, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can go and offer all the bulls, all the goats that you want to, they'll never do what Jesus can do and what Jesus has done. Keep going. Now, what about this? But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Uh, keep going. Let's go through verse 31. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why do you think he's telling them this? Because this is what they're hearing. If you don't do what Moses has told you to do, there's indignation. There's judgment. You better get ready for it. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? Now, this is the reason I believe he's still talking to believers here. Some people think that he's talking to people who they flirted with the idea of getting saved, but they didn't get saved. I think these people are saved, and even though they do this, I think they remain saved. That's going to be my last point. But here he says these people were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. The only people sanctified, set apart, are believers. And insulted the Spirit of grace. He's saying, listen, if you go back to the temple system, you are insulting the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What's this talking about? What about this? Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. I want, to, I want to read this real quick, and this is going to tell us what exactly is being said here. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. Verse 12 to wrap up here. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Listen. So what's this mean? The author of Hebrews was not saying, listen, if you go back to this temporal sacrifice system, God's going to get you. What he was saying is you're going to remove yourself from this secure standing with, with God and you're going to get into this place of condemnation. Condemnation is the opposite of hope. We call hope the confident expectation of good. Condemnation is the fearful expectation of judgment. You're only condemned when you think God would judge you. That's it. Right? So he's so listen, what is the curse of the law? Condemnation. Because when you're when you've placed yourself, listen, nobody's under the law. The law was done away with. Nobody is under the law. But there are people who are living under the curse of the law, which is condemnation. Why? Because they still think they've got to do everything that's written in the law. That's what uh, Paul was saying here to, to the church of Galatia. He's saying, listen, if you're going to live by the law, 
you've got to keep every jot and tittle. And if you don't, you're going to think that judgment is coming. So what he's bringing up here, he's like, listen, there's a curse under that way of looking at things. Notice he said a certain looking for of judgment. He did not say judgment is coming. He said, but you'll look for it. Anybody been there? Before you got a hold of the message of grace, something bad happened? I deserved that. You know what you were doing? You were looking for fiery indignation. You were looking for judgment. You were looking for a God who's out to get you for something you've done. I can remember one morning when I worked for uh, Coca-Cola. I remember one morning I was on my way uh, to a store to work. It's like six, or probably 5.30 in the morning. And I was just driving. And all of a sudden, like, I'm just looking. All of a sudden, it's like somebody just took a black marker and just went across my windshield. My windshield and the whole thing cracked. That's what happened. But it was like, it was like just somebody just went, whoop. And I, this is exactly what came out of my mouth as soon as that happened. I deserved that. Why? Condemnation. There was something going on in my life that I knew I had no business doing, so I was convinced that God just cracked my windshield. Now, it's funny that we think that's something that could be judgment from God because, you know, when God shows up for judgment, He don't just crack a windshield. But that, that's what condemnation will do. You'll see God's judgment in everything. You'll expect it. And listen, what you, what you expect of life many times, most of the time, is what you get. Why? Because that's faith. Fear is just faith in reverse. Fear is faith in what could go wrong. Right? And if you're living... Job said, that which I feared has come upon me. Right? But anyways, alright. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. So, remember that he's, he's encouraging them... Don't draw back, draw near. Don't leave Jesus for Moses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. He goes, he keeps saying here, um, 10, 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. These people are suffering, all right? Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. What's he saying here? You began to be persecuted because who you who you decided to side yourself with. I've got pastors who have recently, their church is coming into this message. They've brought me in. They're being persecuted for one thing, their association with me. I'm not, I'm not making that up. Their persecution is because they've associated with me. That's what he's saying has happened to them. You're being persecuted because you're, you're, you're siding with the Christians. All right? For you had compassion on me in my chains, you sided with me, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. There is reward in confidence. There is reward in security. There is no reward in insecurity. There is no reward in not having confidence. Uh, verse 36, For you have need of endurance so that you have, after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So he's clearly talking to people. He's saying, listen, don't draw back. 
What would a Hebrew draw back to? The temple, the sacrificial system, the commandments. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Remember that, the saving of the soul. This isn't talking about your born-again experience. That's your spirit, the believing to the soul. Now, all right, that is the last verse of Hebrews 10. Then he goes into Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We read the entire chapter, Hebrews 11, and act like it has nothing to do with what was just talked about, the willful sin. He's, Hebrews 11 is a continuation of what he's talking about in Hebrews 10, verse 26. What's Hebrews 11 about? Give, somebody hollered out one word. What's Hebrews 11 about? Come on. The hall of what? Faith. He's pointing to all your Old Testament people that as a Hebrew, as a Jew, you look up to, you read after every day and you love. And he's saying, listen, they only got right by one way, faith. So if you want, really want to be like them, don't go to the temple, go to Jesus. Because he's the one who says this thing is by faith. So Hebrews 11, go down to verse 6. We read this totally disconnected from the context. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. What's he saying? You won't please Him with your works. You won't please Him with the blood of bulls and goats. You won't please Him with your confession of sins. You won't please Him with the commandments. You will only please Him by faith in what Jesus has done. All right, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. We're, we're closing right here, guys, five minutes. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Again, we completely read this out of context. He's talking about the same thing. Therefore, this is the whole conclusion of the matter. We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, talking about the Old Testament saints, let us lay aside in every weight, and look here, look here, the sin. He does not say a sin. This is the way he preaches. Well, my sin might be, you know, pornography. Your sin might be adultery. Your sin might be gambling. Your sin might be drinking. Your sin might be, you know, lying, coveting. You know, we've all got a sin, brother, that easily, you know, besets. No. The sin which so easily ensnares us. What's the sin? Rejecting Jesus. Unbelief in Jesus. Why? Because for the Jew to, to, to accept Jesus, listen, go read, go read the law. It says, listen, you reject this, put them out. So the sin that does so easily beset them is the temptation to willfully reject Jesus, to go back on your trust in Him. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Don't look unto Moses. Don't look at the temple. Look at Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. Why would he bring that up? Because these people were starting in faith, but they weren't ending in faith. And he's like, listen, if you'll keep looking at Jesus, what he began in you, it's going to finish, right? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Listen here, despising the shame. Who brought the shame against him? People. At the cross, they were yelling at him. They were saying things. They were spitting on him. Look here and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, we're finishing up right here. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. 
Now, let me ask you this. Who were the sinners that he was suffering all this hostility against? The Jews. The Jews are the ones who yelled, crucify him. Now, this isn't an anti-Jewish message. That's not what I mean to do. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm trying to get the point across that for the Hebrews believing in Jesus during this time, that was serious. That was not something to, that, that they messed with. So look here. He's saying, for, why? Why is he saying this? Why consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself? Because that's what they were experiencing. He's saying, listen, Jesus experienced the same thing you're going through, and he overcame it. You can too, but you've got to keep your eyes on him. Remember what I taught that first message? Your only job is to look to Jesus. That's your job in your salvation. Just look to Jesus. Right here, and this is my last point. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So am I saying that these people lost their salvation because they, because they were tempted to go back to the sacrificial system? No. Because it's not an issue of their spirit. It was an issue of their soul. And for those of you who haven't been here, your spirit, that's the part of you that's born again. That's the part of you that's alive to God. But your soul, that's your mind, that's your will, and that's your emotions. Your emotions can talk you into doing some pretty stupid stuff. Every sin is emotional, right? Sin is never rational. It's always emotional, all right? So these people, they were having a war in their mind. They were having a war in their emotions, in their soul. But even though there was a war raging in their soul, that spirit was sealed. And that unbelief could not penetrate that spirit. So even though they were tempted to go back, that spirit was still united with Jesus. That spirit was still one with God. All right. So he said, listen, let's don't be of those who believe in drawing back, but let's believe to the saving of the soul. Let's look to Jesus and let's see our mind, our will, and our emotions line up with what's been provided for us in Christ. What is that? The eternal forgiveness of sins. Do you see that this morning? Do you see that? The, so in conclusion, the willful sin. What's the willful sin for the Hebrews? It was to leave Jesus and go back to Moses. It was to know that you've been forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, by the blood of Jesus, by the cross, and go back to the sacrificial system. We can't use this and tell people, listen, if you do something on purpose, you've lost your salvation. No. Your salvation isn't yours to lose. It's not yours to forfeit. Your salvation, listen, we, we read this in the first message, John chapter 6, verses 28 through 40. Jesus says, this is the will of God, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing. So the moment you say that someone lost their salvation, you're saying Jesus failed to keep the will of God. You're saying that Jesus failed failed to do the Father's work. And listen, He will not fail. He will not fail. Your salvation is secure. It's eternal. And this is the message that will, will push you into good works. This is the message that will push you into living out your purpose that God preordained for you before the foundation of the world. This is the message that overcomes sin. Because when you think you, you've got more forgiveness that you need it's just a consciousness of sins. That's what he was saying in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. 
He's like, listen, they had this consciousness of sin. Read, he, read the Old Testament, and you know what you find? People who just sinned, sinned, sinned. Do you know why there's so much judgment of God in the Old Testament that we read? Because under that covenant, sin was judged. And they were continually sinning. They were continually messing it up. But we have something better. right? We have something more secure. He calls it a better covenant with better promises. We don't go back to that. The way you could apply this to your life today is, listen, you trust in Jesus, don't go back to thinking it's by your works. Don't go back to thinking it's by your confession. Don't go back to thinking it's by your church attendance. Don't go back to thinking it's about your Bible reading. I'm for every bit of that stuff. But let it flow out of a relationship and fellowship with God. Not to secure it and keep it, but just because, man, listen, when I do wrong, listen, sometimes I snap at Keisha. And I never think if I don't apologize to her, she will divorce me. Right? That never crosses my mind. You know why I go and apologize? Because I love her. I don't want to hurt her. Sometimes I get impatient with my kids. I always It's very important to me that I always apologize to my wife and kids when I've messed up. Because I love them. I'm not worried they'll get mad at me. I'm not worried they, they won't be my kids anymore. I just love them. So listen, I'm for all that stuff. Like I said, we're going to leave. We're going to go on vacation here in a little bit. Uh, I'm not spending time with them. Afraid they'll leave me if I don't. I just love them. Man, this thing's about fellowship. right? It's not about us needing to secure anything. It's about, listen, knowing we're securing Him, and now let's just enjoy Him. Let's just, let's just man, I'm shutting up. Okay, okay, I'm done. All right, it took me like... It took me like three hours of messages to get that across to y'all, but there we go. Has this blessed you guys today? Hey, Amen. I hope this has answered some questions you have about this scripture. So, all right, guys, anything before we conclude this morning? Go ahead, Brian. Hold on. They'll just, they'll just holler at me and say, I'll give you the mic. So you, you got to. You got to. You got to. Dan, hold that like a foot from you. Private? Okay, hold on. Let's get let, give it to me. I'll give it to Brian, then we'll turn the live stream off. There you go, Brian. Um, man, as you were ministering, as just thinking about how um, when we do things as an action of trying to secure our own place, like out of fear of being rejected, like when you apologize or ask for forgiveness or do certain things. Um, it's like exactly what you said. It's not motivated by love. It's actually selfish because yeah. it's looking to preserve your own well-being. When, when you're secure and confident in who you are, when you apologize, it's for the sake of the other person. Yeah. It's, it's truly an act of love because you're not worrying. Because love, uh, Corinthians 13 says, love seeks not its own. So when, we, when you're actually walking in true, uh, true forgiveness and true apology, um, it's about what it's about the other person. It's about what they're in. And, and you know, God is wanting us to know that. Look, you're so locked down in my love, you know, and that and that fuels that place of that. You know, when I make a mistake, I don't ask the Lord forgiveness. I say, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. And it's because I love Him, and I know He didn't want me to do that. And I know that what He wants for me is best. It's never because my now it's not because 
it's not because of who I am is, or my worth to him or my sta- station with him is in question. It's because him and I and I are in relationship. And in that place is where you'll find more freedom from sin than anything else. It's in that confidence, knowing that God loves you, and it keeps you from sin. Because why would I want to trade anything else that would that would that would cause me to see God any other way, or right. or, or or try to distance my heart from Him when this is the most secure, absolute, peaceful place I've ever been? Amen. Sorry, Tim Trump. I thought you had microphone phobia. Sorry about that. <laughs> so. All right, anybody else before we, and then I'm going to let Tim share. All right, you can go ahead and end the, end the live stream. Um, 